0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Dude Therapist. This week, we have a great guest, colleague, a friend of mine, someone who I was on her show. So we always love to do a nice podcast swap. Dr. Jessica Rabin is a licensed clinical psychologist specialized in pediatric psychology. Her clinical interests include depression, anxiety, chronic medical illnesses, LGBTQ plus health and eating disorders. She has published a number of peer-reviewed research papers and a book, with her primary research interests being in the areas of positive psychology and suicide. Additionally, Dr. Jess creates mental health content on TikTok and Instagram with the goal of making mental health more accessible and relatable and destigmatizing mental health. This is a really raw and honest conversation about suicide. So, warning. This might be a trigger for some of you who have had or currently have suicidal ideations or have a past of suicide attempts and self-harm. If this is a word for you, please listen to another episode. And if it's not, just be aware that we have an honest conversation about a really hard topic. Suicide is something that affects so many people in the world. Men, women, the LGBTQ community, Every race, every religion, and every culture. It's a sad, honest truth about being human that we get to a point of despair. But this episode was truly impactful with practical, amazing tools from Dr. Jessica Rabin. So if you're looking for some advice, she's the person. And if there's an emergency, never forget that there's always the Suicide Hotline and 911 if you need it. You're not alone in the struggle. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. Let's get right into it. Welcome to this week's episode of the Dude Therapist. I'm so pumped. We're on season three and season three is going to be great. Just like season two was great, but we're just building. We're building. And, you know, I talk about this often when someone has me on their show and I really love their vibe. I have to have them on mine. So Dr. Jessica Rabin really had me on her show and embraced everything. And it was so nice and so just knowledgeable. And I was like, this person has to be on the show. So Dr. Jessica Rabin, could you please introduce yourself to the listeners so we can go right into the conversation that needs to happen?
1: Well, thank you for having me on Ellie. And to this day, you are still the only male on my podcast. So you're holding that title <laughs> strong. Um, yeah. So, like um, Ellie said, I'm Dr. Jessica Rabin. I am a licensed clinical psychologist in South Carolina. I work in a children's hospital, I have two roles there. So, On the inpatient side, I work medical inpatient with individuals with chronic illness, due diagnosis or physical traumas like a car accident. And then on the outpatient side, I work in our adolescent medicine clinic, primarily working with individuals with depression, anxiety, eating disorders, or LGBTQ related um, care and I graduated with my PhD in clinical psychology in 2018, and my research really focused on positive psychology and suicide, um, particularly self compassion. So, those are some topics I'm really passionate about. And outside of that, I enjoy making TikToks and Instagram posts about mental health. I'm a wife and a mother. And yeah, that's what more
0: can you be doing? I mean, you're just, and you have a book, right?
1: Yes, I do have a, a book <laughs> on on suicide. Actually, that I was a co editor with my advisor in graduate school, um, and then one of his colleagues. So um, I co wrote the first and last chapter, and then edited. So you're Just
0: checking off all these boxes, you know, no biggie, saying it nonchalantly. You know, I just started opening a Google Doc where I wrote a table of contents for a book that I'm thinking about writing. Um, I, I had up some excitement and energy and power for to, to do that. And since then, which was a week ago, I haven't looked at it. I'm like, uh, uh-uh, too much stress, but I have no timeline. So it's all good. But I love the fact that you are the thing that amazes me about your knowledge and your expertise. And really what amazes me about what you do, you're dealing with two very extreme things, trauma, right? Physical trauma, chronic illness, and also mental health trauma and suicidality mm-hmm. and a very intense things. One, how do you kind of are they the similar in how you kind of approach it? And then how do you deal with both extremes for yourself?
1: So similar and different, I guess, which is a very broad answer, but, you know, we know that mental health and physical health are so integrated and so related. If somebody has poor physical health, their mental health is going to suffer. If somebody has poor mental health, their physical health Is likely going to suffer unless they're getting intervention. So in that sense, I do approach things similarly using similar skills. But one thing I have noticed, at least on the medical inpatient side, there is a lot more when you're working with chronic illness or like a physical trauma that possibly results in some type of life-changing outcome whether it's like paraplegia or um, i've had individuals have to get limbs amputated depending on the trauma you know traditional cbt trying to challenge thoughts about you know this sucks that I live with a chronic illness or that my life has just changed forever. Like that's not going to be helpful. So I do more values-based work there um, helping individuals identify, you know, what are my values and how can I still live out those values um, with this new diagnosis or with this life-changing trauma? I do values work on the outpatient side as well. And then another main difference. So like with suicidality or the more, Traditional mental health. um, I'm seeing those individuals for a longer period of time doing a lot more safety planning, long term goals in the hospital. It's much more acute uh, solution focused treatment. So what is going on right now? Some of those individuals I will follow up outpatient, Mm -hmm. but a lot of times like we are one of the only children's hospitals within a very broad area. So these individuals might be coming from two hours away. So it's not feasible for wow. them to follow up with me. Um, so that would be another main difference solution focus versus more long term.
0: And, and you know, I recently had a chat with uh, Ali Cleland. She's an amputee and ha- was born with a uh, in Ukraine, which they feel that uh, the Chernobyl effects um, had some birth defects where she doesn't have middle fingers. So she has these kind of claw looking type of hands and uh, we were chatting and I had her on the show and we're talking about that value-based and she has to keep reminding herself that positive psychology kind of value-based idea of like, I can live a great life and here's why Mm -hmm. I can still do X, Y, and Z. I might have to adjust how I do it and maybe I don't have to do, I can't run as fast or do X, Y, and Z as quality, but I'm finding the quality within how I do it. Maybe not mm-hmm. the standard of the quote unquote, big air quotes, normal of life, which I don't like that idea anyways, because I don't think anyone is normal and 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 we all deal with our stuff. And it was so amazing to listen to her. She wants to get into Paralympics in horse riding. She's training for four years from now. Like that's and she's and she has one leg. That's but awesome. she's like, I'm I'm proving that I can do it because I like it. And I can, and I want to. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I love that idea. And I want to then jump into quickly, not quickly, it's going to be a long conversation about this real big topic, but just to transition about this idea of suicidality, right? Every therapist once in their career has dealt with at least one client who has had suicidal thoughts. Mm -hmm. And it can be very scary for the Mm -hmm. clinician. I remember my first time dealing with someone who was actually contemplating it. It made me worried that if I do the wrong thing, If I say the wrong thing, will that lead to a bad place and how much power I felt that I had? Is that true? Is there something that a therapist can say that is so wrong and so bad um, that can really push someone over the edge? And as therapists and mental health professionals, do we really have that much control over someone's decisions about suicidality?
1: I'm sorry, we're
0: going right. We're going right (laughs) to the deep and dark stuff.
1: No, that's fine. I mean, I am sure there are things that therapists could say that would push people over the edge, but those individuals should probably not be therapists. Like I don't care about you or you're doing this for attention or you
0: should just go kill yourself.
1: Yeah, exactly. Completely invalidating their experience. My hope is that if that's your mindset, you are probably not a therapist. Um, as for like, can we really control? I mean, As therapists, we have to do everything we can to potentially prevent our client from taking their own life, ensuring we're safety planning, ensuring that if they are unable to safety plan and they tell us they have a plan, that we are getting them to the ED for a proper or a second evaluation, um, making sure that they are safe. And at the end of the day, individuals have their own autonomy so we can do everything quote unquote right, everything by the book, everything we are taught, and there will be times that unfortunately our efforts are not enough. But my hope is that by doing the safety planning, by you know validating their experience, teaching them coping skills, doing everything that we can in our power to um, provide them with the support and safety they need they will not end up um, attempting or taking their own life. But, you know, as therapists, we can rack our brains around, like, what could I have done differently, et cetera. But also there, I mean, there's been times that I see a client and they're doing great and say it's a Monday just for ease of purpose. And then I see over the weekend, because I work in a hospital that they ended up in, our psychiatric inpatient unit for a suicide attempt when I was supposed to see them the next Monday and the past Monday, they didn't endorse anything. So, um, I hope that answered your question.
0: Yeah. And I, and I think something I remind myself as a therapist, and I have told younger, newer therapists, even though I am still younger and newer, but now that I have at LCSW, I'm kind of helping younger therapists and starting to supervise therapists. And the biggest thing is that we can do all that we can, but someone has control over their life. And they want if they want to do something and they want to hurt themselves or they want to die, we can, o- we can only have so much power. We can mm-hmm. only do so much for someone. And that's a hard, honest truth because- that goes for everything in life as a therapist. If we we can show up every day, we can do all the quote unquote right things, you know, research. We can find the treatment styles. We can we can personalize it. We can sit there and validate and empathy and love and care and all the things that we should be doing as therapists, and still someone might not be able to get better or not <laughs> do better or might hurt themselves or whatever issue they're coming to therapy. But we have to then have compassion for ourselves that we have to believe that we're trying and doing our best and that Mm -hmm. we're not trying to hurt our clients as long as we show up for our clients. That's all we can do. Are there then, you know, before we got on the call, I I wanted to talk about this because it's I think it's important. I think the world of media, and I think the world, and that's why I love that you are getting in so involved in TikTok and social media and kind of taking away the myths and taking away the perceptions that are false. What are some false narratives or myths about suicidality or suicidal ideations that has been kind of put out there by TV, movies, and media or celebrities?
1: Um, So some of the biggest ones that come to mind is that people that die by suicide are like selfish, weak, crazy, all of those negative words. Um, Another... I guess myth about suicidal ideation um, that I've seen a lot, especially since I work with teens and especially on TikTok, a lot of teens follow me is that if you endorse your suicidal and just have suicidal thoughts to your therapist, you're automatically going to be hospitalized. The reality is, suicidal thoughts are extremely common, even with people that don't have depression, um, don't have anxiety, don't have trauma. People may experience intrusive suicidal thoughts at some point. Um, The example a lot of people give, you might be driving over a bridge and then you have the thought like, oh, I could just drive off this right now. And it comes out of nowhere. So suicidal thoughts are actually extremely common. And talking to your therapist about those thoughts are not going to automatically get you hospitalized, especially if there's no intent plan and you're able to safety plan. Um, A lot of myths about suicide as well as like there were no warning signs. A lot of people just don't know what the warning signs are. So it seemingly comes out of nowhere where in reality, retrospectively, one can see um, that there's a lot of signs that people may have missed.
0: That Those uh, myths really kind of triggered me to write a few things down. Uh, suicidal ideations happen to anyone and everyone. It's not a certain gender it's not a certain race it's not a certain culture there are more trends or higher rates of suicidal risk because of certain uh socioeconomic or societal pressures or issues and we'll talk about that in a second but the biggest thing that i hear is that you don't need to be quote unquote big air quotes crazy to have suicidal thoughts, you mm-hmm. don't have to have schizophrenia or bipolar to all of a sudden have um, suicidal thoughts. I've worked with so many different types of people that have once in their life. I remember I had I had a shout out to my old supervisor, Dr. Stanley Rustin, old school therapist, eighty something years old, love him to pieces. Favorite person that ever taught me. Um, I was once talking at a client, young. I'm a young therapist. Uh, someone says, "Oh, I, you know, I had this thought, and I jumped and got two, um I don't want to say the word excited because that's not a good word for what I'm trying to say, but too into it about protecting and safety and safety Mm -hmm. and safety and safety. I was asking, 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 and I wasn't listening. And he said to me, he said, he said, okay, you got, you got to take a step back because everyone and anyone has had one suicidal thought in their entire life. So when you do an intake or when you talk to a client and they mention, you know, last night I was having a hard day and I'm like, if only I didn't wake up tomorrow, if
1: Mm -hmm. only all
0: my issues went away and I could just disappear. That's a very simple thought that is considered a suicidal ideation, but is not automatically a dangerous zone where someone, which it means someone is going to hurt or kill themselves. Exactly. We've all had that at the darkest night of our life. We've all had some thought some way or another about that thought. And I sat there and he was like so intense, right? Very old school, very like in my face, no BS. And I love him and I wish I can still work with him. And he was like... So take a breath and listen, don't act, don't react, listen. And Mm -hmm. I hear that very often. I have clients who say, oh, I don't want to tell you something. And I say, what's going on? They're like, I'm afraid that if I tell you, you're going to send me to the hospital. And I said, well, and then I explained why I would send someone to the hospital. If they need extra support, if I can't help them, if they're in severe or or immediate danger. I said, other than that, let me be the judge of that. But if I ever do send you to the hospital, it's because I really care about you. It's mm-hmm. not because you're being sentenced or I'm trying to hurt you because I see that something's really dangerous or worrisome. And they go, oh, so if I tell you X, Y, and Z, you're not going to send me to the hospital? I said, nope. Let's talk about it. Let yeah. me listen. If, if 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 then afterwards, I'll be very honest with you. But I think people are so afraid to be honest sometimes with their therapists because of the fear that of like going to be put away in some psych unit locked up forever, never released. Mm -hmm. How do you handle that with teens? Because you work a lot with teens and I think teens, and I love working with teens and I think they're amazing. And they're also scary because they're so amazing and so all over the place. That's what makes them so much fun and keeps you on your toes. How do you approach a teenager? How do you deal with a teenager? Who's worried about opening up because of that fear and they are having legitimate suicidal ideations?
1: So I'm so glad you asked this. Cause I was literally about to like respond with what you just asked me. So one thing I ensure I do. So at the first appointment, the intake, um, I will usually, so in my, in South Carolina at 16, you can consent to your own mental health treatment. So most often though, I do have even my 16, 17 year olds come in with a parent And I'll invite the parent in with them for like going over limits of confidentiality and all that kind of stuff. But I make sure
0: the logistics, logistics,
1: yes, logistics, logistics. (laughs) So at the intake, when I'm going over limits of confidentiality and cover like uh, imminent harm to self or others, I then go in and explain that imminent harm means imminent means you have a plan. You are about to do something to hurt yourself or someone else. And then I explain, I do not want you to fear bringing up any suicidal thoughts, self-harm thoughts to me out of fear of me telling your parents and or me having to send you to the hospital. And then I say, you know, if you are able to safety plan, if you have no plan or intent to do or act upon those thoughts, hospitalization is not going to be the outcome. And then I say, if you don't tell me about those thoughts, those thoughts aren't going to be able to get better because you are hiding them and suppressing them and trying to figure them out on their own. Perfect. So that's Perfect. at the intake then throughout. I mean, cause I, I frequently assess for suicidal thoughts. Um, just even if my clients aren't depressed every so often, I'll just do a check in. And I have some clients that are chronically suicidal. They always have thoughts, but they have no plan or intent. So I just remind them, you know, as long as the thoughts are there, but you can safety plan with me. I'm not going to tell your parents. I'm not going to um, send you to the ED. There are sometimes like I can think of one situation where my, a patient of mine did, and I use patient cause I work in a hospital, but I'll interchange patient and client um, was having thoughts of harming themselves. And did disclose to me that they did have a knife in their room and said right now they had no intent of acting upon it. But historically I knew late at night when they couldn't sleep and their depressive and anxious thoughts get worse, they had a higher chance of hurting themselves. So what I said to them is, you know, I'm really worried about your safety. I feel like this is something that we need to bring mom in on. Mom knew about the history. Um And I said, I just want mom to come in and remove the knife from your room. That's all I'm going to tell her. And we brought mom in. Mom was like, thank you for telling me. I'll be sure to watch. And so it really depends on the situation. But I would say for the most part, by setting it up at the intake and also just reassuring um, patients, because I tell people all the time, informed consent is always ongoing in therapy. Like, I don't think anybody really remembers everything we cover in the first session. So informed consent is ongoing. And if I can tell my client is feeling worse than usual, I'll say, you know, I am going to assess for suicidality or self-harming behaviors, I want to remind you that if you're having these thoughts, I want you to share them with me. Or if you have self-harm, I want you to share them with me. And it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to send you to the hospital if you're able to safety plan with me, don't have intent, etc.
0: Those are great points. And I'm going to get a little more practical about some of the things that we're going to talk about next, because I wrote down uh, so maybe hard answers, maybe hard questions, and, and maybe we'll see if we can get the answers. Um, this idea that, you know, you mentioned something quickly before, and I, I've dealt with this. As teenagers, I think there is this random concern of manipulation. Now, I've worked with people who have borderline personality disorder, and there is this back and forth of manipulating slash attention seeking slash suicidal thoughts slash self-harm, you know, all that back and forth. And I'm not talking about that right now. Different topic for a different Mm -hmm. person for a different time. For you, I want to talk about as a parent or as a clinician, what's the difference and how do you tell? And then how do you then deal with someone is manipulating versus someone actually reeling, really, really being in in a very hard, dark place?
1: So with like the idea of, manipulation. Um, and I personally like, cause teens, we were all teens once Like, we try to get away with things, be deceitful, be manipulative, whatever it is. That's just part of being a teenager, finding your identity, separating from your parents. Um, so I try not to use like that word in therapy because my conceptualization is if somebody is quote unquote manipulative, there is a purpose behind it. So what, what are they actually trying love to Love that. I see. love
0: that. I love that, right? Because if they're saying something, this is the biggest thing for teens. I want to jump in real quick. The biggest thing for teens, if they're telling you something, it means something. They don't just talk just for fun. They don't just, excuse my language, shoot the shit. They mm-hmm. really just sit they're very blunt and they're honest. So they say something, there's something behind it if it's not just what they're saying, it's on the surface, there's something deeper behind it. So yes, you might view it as manipulation and use that word out there, which then, by the way, takes all their trust away and mm-hmm. then hurts them deeper. But there's something deep behind it. So you have to really pay attention as a therapist and parent. So sorry, I just wanted to no, jump in. No. go for it.
1: No. So and when you brought that up, so like I can think of one client I had in the past who I think by parent standards, teachers, people on the outside would say that she was Manipulative, especially when it came to suicidality, always reported, yes, I'm suicidal suicidal. I have a plan, I have intent, like always. And then when we dove deeper, re- so she had been psychiatrically hospitalized before, and she felt accepted there because finally people understood what she was going through, and she didn't have that at school or at home. And that's what she was seeking. And so Her saying I'm suicidal, yes, I have intent and plan. And obviously, as clinicians, we have to take every threat of suicide seriously. But it was like E D visit after E D visit, never getting hospitalized because once she was there and everything, they deemed she would be safe at home. But when we dove deeper, she was using that as a method to communicate that she felt unheard, misunderstood, etc. And so I think you know, you asked like, how do you tell the difference? And I wish there was like an easy formula. (laughs) I think part of it is knowing your client because I have clients that, like I said, are chronically suicidal and will always report that they're suicidal. Even if their affect's a little brighter, they're still having those, um, thoughts and that's just, they are extremely depressed. Um, Possibly a bipolar disorder; those are the two um, diagnoses I see most frequently with my suicidal individuals, which is why I brought up those diagnoses. Or I have other clients that you know maybe at baseline are anxious, depressed, but then their affect is like really low, and I can tell okay, there's something else um, going on. So I think part of it's just knowing your client, and also knowing their their pattern. Like historically, have they been chronically suicidal? And what have we done? What has worked? What has not worked? Have they made attempts or do they just have chronic thoughts? Um, Or like the client I um, mentioned earlier, what is the deeper meaning behind saying these things, especially if they're unwilling to, and I don't, uh, now that I said unwilling, or I don't like that word, so I'm going to change it, are resistant to engaging in skills that will help these behaviors, that's when I might say, okay, there might be something deeper going on because most suicidal people don't want to feel that way. I would, and I say most because I don't know every single person in the world, so I can't say all, but they want their pain to end. They don't want to feel this way. Some have come to accept the fact that, you know, yeah, I'm going to have suicidal thoughts and they've learned to live with that. But I would say the vast majority of individuals, at least I've worked with, Don't want to feel that way anymore. And they want to get help. So if there is some resistance to help kind of explore that more, what is really going on here? Is there an underlying meaning behind Mm -hmm. saying these things? Mm
0: -hmm. You made a great point. You made a lot of great points, but the thing I want to kind of jump on is that last point, something that's very, a big misconception about mental health. You know, I know we're recording right now and it's August 1st and it's going to come out probably in 2022. It sounds so of, weird. I lost track of the years, I, you know, because the Olympics is 2020, but but we're in 2021. So what's next year and COVID? I don't know. The whole thing messes me up. <laughs> but Simone Biles, right? And yes. all the stuff going on. I want to make it very clear. We're not going to talk political. We're not going to talk about all that stuff. And Simone Biles, we've heard you've posted about it. I posted about it. Most therapists have posted about it. The idea of importance of mental health. When you feel that something's wrong, you don't like it. Mm-hmm. You don't want to have it. You can't do something otherwise. So when someone's really not okay and they're having panic attacks, like Simone Biles was talking about, the pressure, the anxiety, she called us, she said she was shaking and the lack of trust and availability for herself to believe in herself and have compassion, which we're going to talk about next. Stay tuned. Um, is that if someone is having suicidal ideations, they don't like it. No one likes to feel so in such despair that they want to die. Right. No one has ever said, oh, yeah, I love that feeling. It's enjoyable. Of course Mm -hmm. not. So when we make these assumptions and we put our beliefs on someone else's mental health and say, just snap out of it. Get over it. Deal with it. Show up. Come on. Do it. Why are you kind of backing out of the Olympics? Isn't it just easy for you to just feel better? Of course they want to. Yep. They can't.
1: And that's exactly. the biggest
0: thing. No one wants to feel that way. They can't feel otherwise without the proper help, care, and self care and self compassion. Which jump into the next topic. How does your your dissertation, right? Mm-hmm. See, that's why I'm the host. I, I could really, I could really just you know, that whole that whole that whole line. We got it. We got it. We're getting there. So for you, you did you did your research and dissertation mm-hmm. in your graduate PhD program was yes. the connection between self compassion and suicidality. Correct. Can we talk about that a little bit um, or a lot of it? We have plenty of time, 15 minutes. We got more. So we're, got, we're good. So we're golden. So can we talk about the connection of self-compassion and suicidality and how we can kind of actually, not just from a research perspective, but mm-hmm. a practical perspective, integrate that into our lives and whoever might be listening, who might be going through that?
1: Of course. So um, first I'll just define self-compassion. We all know what compassion for other people is is, you know, seeing somebody suffering, wanting or feeling that empathy, wanting to be there for them. Um, So self-compassion, I use Kristen Neff's model. Um, She is probably the top researcher in self-compassion and her model has three components of self-compassion. So first is self-kindness. And this is the opposite of self-criticism, which so many of us engage in. We are harder on ourselves than we would be anybody else. Um, so teaching yourself to respond in a kind, compassionate way to yourself, to your struggles. Um, the next component is mindfulness. So mindful awareness of how you're feeling, what you're thinking, being present in the moment, sitting with your feelings without suppressing them or without, um, over-identifying with them, which basically means you know, you're know you feeling anxious and then you just sit in that feeling and ruminate and, okay, I'm anxious now. I'm just going to be anxious forever. My life is horrible. Um, so the opposite of like avoiding feelings, basically basking in the um, uncomfortable emotion. And then the third component is common humanity. The recognition that one, you are not alone in your suffering, but two, that suffering and pain is part of being human. There is not a human on this earth other than maybe a baby that is like a couple minutes old (laughs) that has not felt pain or suffering. Um, And so when we think of self-compassion and suicide, it's actually interesting because you would think there would be a lot of research on this. Okay. Obviously, if you're higher, obviously I put that in quotes. If you're higher in self-compassion and you're kinder to yourself, you recognize you're not alone in your suffering your suicidal thoughts, behaviors, et cetera, will be less. Um, when I, so prior to my dissertation, I wrote another paper on self-compassion and, and suicide. And I think that was like the fourth paper ever hmm. on the connection between self-compassion and suicide. Oh, you! <laughs> Thanks. Um, there is a number more out now, but this was, you know, probably 2015 or 2016, I think when I wrote that first paper. Um, So there wasn't literature on it. And so what my dissertation without like going into the whole thing looked at, um, I looked at the connection between self-compassion and suicidal behavior and the pathways of anxiety, depression, and hopelessness. And then I looked at it in four different samples. So like a community sample, a college student sample, and then two Um, chronic illness samples, actually, because that's an interest of mine. So cancer and fibromyalgia. And basically what I found overall, and the research supports this, is that higher levels of self-compassion are related to lower levels of anxiety, depression, hopelessness, and in turn, those reduce suicidality. Um, there's a lot of literature out there on self-compassion and its um, mental health benefits. So individuals that are higher in self-compassion or practice self-compassion do have less stress. They're able to cope better. Um, they have better physical health actually as well. Um, those lower in self-compassion, higher depression, um, higher like reactivity, negative um, and low self-esteem, etc. cetera. So the more one... Can practice and engage in self-compassion, which a cool thing about self-compassion, we all have a baseline level, but you can learn skills and interventions to increase your self-compassion in turn through at least what my research found through reducing those like intermediate factors. So Mm -hmm. reducing depression, anxiety, stress, Mm -hmm. better able to cope, recognizing that you're not alone. We know social support is a huge protective factor for suicidality. So even if you don't have your support system immediately around you, if you can recognize that there's people out there that understand what you're feeling and you feel less alone, that's gonna reduce suicidality. If you look at Joyner's model of suicide, um, one, or there's a number of factors, but that you perceive that you're a burden to others because of how you're feeling. So if you recognize, Oh, I'm not the only one that's feeling this way. Um, I'm not burdening other people because there's other people experiencing Mm -hmm. this too. We know isolation increases risk for suicide. So if you feel less isolated, maybe you're going to reach out more. Maybe it's just knowing that you're not alone. That's going to help you. Um, obviously it's individual differences, but yeah. Yeah.
0: I love that, you know, and, uh, I didn't know Kristen Neff was 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 that I didn't know who that was. So thank you so that for that resource, I wrote it down. <laughs> I'm gonna check her out. Um, and you know, I know for me, I I I've disclosed I, I struggle with Crohn's. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm and thank God I'm in remission. I'm doing a lot better now. But for a couple of years, that idea of if only I wasn't a burden for my family or for my partner, um, mm-hmm. their life would be better. Yep. Now I was never suicidal. Never, But that thought of if my issues went away or I went away, I never considered anything to the next step of I'm going to do something about it. But Mm -hmm. there's a very lonely feeling of not having compassion for yourself and the feelings of being that burden for other people or even hating on yourself and being critical of every aspect, specifically with physical health, when it limits you to Mm -hmm. be able to do things in your life. But that goes just hand in hand with mental health Mm because mental health can limit you as well. And it can stop you from showing up the way you would like to or hope to. And recently, I I think that mental health really the the telltale sign is if you're not being as effective in life as you would hope to be. Mm -hmm. Not that you're not functioning because you can function at baseline. You can do the dishes and put your kid to bed and do but you're not functioning effectively to the uh, and degree that you hoped to be and want to be in your life and show up for yourself. And so to hear that there are compassion is so important and so integral, something that sounds so easy but is so freaking hard yeah. because there are things in our days that really knock us down and it's stressful and it's hard. And then, you know, you're you're if you're married or you have a relationship or you don't Right. And that plays with your head. And then you have kids, one kid, two kids, three kids, all those things play into your self-compassion, your job, your work, everything can kind of really knock you down a peg, which then internalizes to less compassion, Mm -hmm. less ability to cope, less ability to have resilience Mm -hmm. and fight back. And it's a beautiful thing that there are resources out there like yourself and other people. Um, and we don't care about them. We care about you. (laughs) Um, Um, and so it's amazing that that's such an integral part. Um, You know, something I was thinking about is I know for me, the research on men and the high rates of suicidal attempts, Mm -hmm. um, successful attempts and unsuccessful attempts is a lot higher than other communities, which is sometimes surprising to people who hear that because this idea of masculinity and manhood and this, you know, strong, quote unquote, atmosphere that has to be about men and men and men and Okay, we get it. We get it. But there's a lot of vulnerability and fragility with Mm -hmm. men that people don't realize. Mm -hmm. And I know that's why I show up as a dude therapist. That's why I show up as a therapist. And I don't just work with men, but being a dude who is a therapist, i.e. why it's called the dude therapist, um, I want to bring a voice to that. Mm -hmm. But there are so many other communities that people don't realize have such a high risk of suicidality can you kind of touch on that in the last couple of minutes that we have to bring awareness to maybe people who don't get the opportunity to be heard or seen in that atmosphere
1: oh definitely so i i love the fact that you brought up men so we do know that men um and as i quote these stats i'll be honest i haven't looked at like the most recent like 2021 if they have new stats but um Men are successful at dying by suicide about four times the amount of women. And that's typically because they use more lethal means women more likely. And I guess I should do a content warning, but we've been talking about suicide use lesser means lesser, quote unquote, less deadly means such as um, using prescription pills to overdose where men tend to go to like
0: guns guns, and hanging and, and knives
1: um, and then another thing that I, a lot of people don't realize because they're like, oh, that's shocking men. And we could talk for days about men's mental health. And I know that's why you came on my podcast um, to talk about that. But another thing people don't realize is that um, in the U S at least the highest suicide rates are of white men over the age of 65.
0: Yep. That was and a people, question on my LCSW exam.
1: So, and people are like, why? But if you think about like how our society um, really puts pressure on men Um, at 65, most men are retiring and our society tells men that they have to be the breadwinner of the family. Their life is work um, that they have to provide. And at 65, most men are retiring and their life's work is now complete. And so they have nothing, not, and I don't want to say they have nothing to live for because a lot of people have partners or grandchildren or things like that. But for golf, many they golf, it could golf, <laughs> exactly for many individuals, that is a drastic change. Mm-hmm. And then if they lose their life partner later in life due to death, and then they're alone, you have that isolation. Um, so that's a huge factor that people don't consider, but outside of men um, in general. So the LGBTQ community has high suicide rates. And going back to like myths about suicide, people think, uninformed people think it's because they are lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans. The research shows that that is not the case. The research shows the higher rates of suicidality are due to things like not being accepted by family, lacking social support, hate crimes, and discrimination. Um, So I work with a lot of LGBTQ youth. And one of the things I always tell parents and talk about is that, you know, supporting your kid, if your kid is trans using their correct name and pronouns, that is suicide prevention because just validating one's identity making them feel safe, making them feel loved and cared about is suicide prevention. Um, Another population that a lot of people don't realize have. high suicide rates are the native American population. Um, They have some of the highest suicide rates in the United States. Um, They have a lot of substance abuse as well. So one thought is the higher rates of substance abuse um, and higher rates of suicidality, but that's uh, a population I think is not talked about nearly as much when it comes Mm -hmm. to suicide as well.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much. And the thing I wrote down, John, and then I'll have one last question to ask, which is like the practical, takeaway of people who might you know just to get you to start thinking about it about what are some things that you can tell a lasting kind of thought process to maybe people who are going through this hard time or even families of people but my point is this is that one of the reasons you touched on the 65 and up white men right it's the idea of identity and Mm -hmm. belonging but that idea is part of human society of the world so when someone doesn't feel that they belong That they are an outsider or they are a burden or they are less than and they are not considered part of the conversation or even part of someone's world. That identity of self is lost and someone then says, well, if no one loves me, no one cares about me. I'm not seen. I'm not heard. I'm not respected. I'm considered nothing. Maybe I am nothing. Mm -hmm. And then that is believed, internalized, and acted upon. So it's not just a simple like a 65 white male. Ta-da. That's
1: mm-hmm.
0: what I think the biggest thing with the LGBTQ community is that this idea of not belonging, mm-hmm. being shunned, pushed away, hated, mm-hmm. uh, discriminated, all the negative words that you can throw out there on somebody. That's not a fun place to be to mm-hmm. make it as simple as a term to a complex idea So just be careful with your words, be careful with how we speak to each other, how we treat each other, and on top of it, how we then speak and treat ourselves. Mm
1: -hmm. Because
0: the biggest thing about self-compassion is the focus of self. Mm -hmm. It's about you. You can make yourself happy. You can deeply impact your definition of yourself devoid of external people. It is beautiful and amazing when you have that external validation and love. Mm-hmm. but you don't need it to be successful in life. And that's the biggest thing that I think is so important for people to hear. But I'm not the expert, you are. So what are some lasting things if no one listened to anything else of the show, which I hope they did. And if you'd really just skip to the end, I don't know why you did that, but what is like the uh, one or two things that you can kind of give over to a person who might be struggling with suicidal ideations and even maybe family members of someone who is going through that dark time?
1: So one or two. That's <laughs> that's hard. no
0: pressure yeah. to sum up and save people here. Yeah. But it could be three. It could be four. Yeah. Uh, no, so, some ideas.
1: To somebody struggling. And I know this is a very cliche and not everybody may resonate with it, but knowing that you are not alone. We've covered in this episode, suicidal thoughts are extremely common we covered when talking about self-compassion, that common humanity, that pain and suffering is part of being human. It doesn't feel good. And I know that if you're in a spot right now, when you where you are feeling suicidal, you want your pain to end. You don't want to feel like this anymore. I also recognize that getting therapy, seeing a psychiatrist is a privilege in our country. Unfortunately, ideally you would be able to get the help and support you need. Um, But there are other ways to, if there are people you trust that you can reach out to, um, to have conversations, calling a suicide hotline, which I know can be hit or miss, but they have text lines as well. And one thing, go back to the basics. So we talked about self-compassion. That's a really good basic, but like, make sure you're showering, make sure you're brushing your teeth, make sure you're eating because doing those little things are going to help you as for family. One thing that I thought of as we were having this conversation along the lines of burdensomeness, you know, obviously don't invalidate their experience. Don't say they're doing it for attention. But one thing a lot of people will say to suicidal people, like, well, think of your child, think of your partner, like what would they do without you? When somebody is so suicidal that they're feeling like a burden to others, their core belief is that my family would be better off without me. So bringing up other people is just going to cause them to feel more guilty because their true belief is that their lives will be better because I am such a burden. So that is not helpful. Just be there. Listen to them. Ask them what you can do to support them. Maybe if if mental health treatment is available, offer to help them find a therapist. Do the legwork for them. If they are so depressed, they can't get out of bed. Be the one that says, you know, I've done some research. These, you know, four therapists take your insurance and, you know, they're not going to let me call for you, but like, here's the phone number and I've done everything. Or do you want me to send an email from your email account? Just, I mean, this sounds, I guess, silly, but like have compassion for them. Going back to self-compassion, don't invalidate, don't say they're doing it for attention. Just be there. You love and care about them because they're an important part of your life show them that love and care.
0: Thank you so much for coming on today and making the time. I really appreciate it. I cannot wait to share this episode. It's so important. And don't worry, there'll be a trigger. There'll be a warning uh, before to make sure that everyone is aware of what they're getting into. But thank you so much, Jessica, for for showing up today and, and being so insightful and caring and, and bringing such knowledge to such an important topic.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you so much to listening to this week's episode of The Dude Therapist, and it only is happening because of you, the listeners, tuning in every week, even twice a week, to this show all about mental health, relationships, and wellness topics, and really, let's be honest, everything in between. And I'm so excited to show up every time and having great guests. So thank you. And if you have any questions, concerns, ideas, collaborations, email me at thedudetherapist at gmail.com. Follow me on Instagram at thedudetherapist. Let me know what you're thinking. Let me know your ideas. I can't wait to hear from you. And if you can go along, subscribe, rate, review on all the streaming sites that you're listening on, I truly appreciate it because that's what make this thing happen. So thanks for tuning in this week. And see you next time on the Dude Therapist Podcast, because we've got more guests and more great content coming your way.